Well, it is uh, just totally thrilling uh, to be with you all for the second time. Yeah, I've met some of you that remember Ken and I were here earlier. A few years ago, we're trying to figure out just which year. But wow, there are a lot of people here. <laughs> uh, we got here early to hear uh, Buddy Davis, you know, the concert for kids. There was no room in the inn, okay? <laughs> that was overflowing. And uh, one of the greatest joys Mary and I have had in, in our long work with creation science is bringing Ken Ham and Buddy Davis together. Both of those guys made a tremendous amount to us. And tomorrow, I really encourage all of you, at least all of you can fit in, to see Ken and Buddy together for the young ones, the dinosaur talks in the morning, and they had some really important stuff, thinking biblically for teens in that second session. Uh, That'll be really a thrill, and it'll help you deal with people like I once was. (laughs) And so, sorry to say, uh, you're looking at what, in one sense, might be one of your worst nightmares. (laughs) And so you've been saving up, you know, building a college fund and so on. And, and you finally send uh, your young people off, you know, to be trained. And, and they run into somebody like I once was. So for the first several years, I, I taught uh, college biology. I taught it uh, not only teaching, but preaching. Uh, millions of years of struggle and death, evolution. And there wasn't any plan or purpose or special creative acts of, of God that brought us into being. No, it was millions of years of struggle and death, struggle and death for millions of years. That's what brought man and all of the other creatures into being. And uh, actually, I was just following the lead of that uh, famous evolutionist, uh, Charles Darwin. Uh, You know, a lot of people uh, somehow try to put evolution and the Bible together. I used to do that. And I just met another Gary, Gary Jordan, uh, that uh, just told me this evening, although he's told me before, that in a seminar uh, in uh, Indiana, I just was there in Greenwood and nearby Nashville, uh, that uh, the book, Creation Facts of Life, helped alert him to the dangers of theistic evolution. And uh, people that try to put the Bible and evolution together often have kind of a romanticized idea that, that evolution is sort of step by step, upward, onward progress, something that God might really do. Well, these are the words that Darwin used to summarize his own theory in the closing paragraphs of Origin of Species. Thus, from the, what? War of nature, from famine and death. How would you end a sentence that started that way? Thus, from the war of nature, famine and death. Wouldn't you kind of think things got worse and worse and worse and really really need to do something to conquer famine and death and and improve things? No. Darwin thought thus from the war of nature, from famine and death, what? The production of higher animals, including, as Ken said, human beings, directly follows. That if you just have enough struggle and death for a long enough period of time, everything gets better and better and better. (laughs) Somehow I wonder, how in the world did they ever sell that to anybody? (laughs) Well, they called it natural selection. It sounded like something wonderful, you know. And and you really have to dress it up. Just like, do you know, you've never met anybody. I don't think any of you have ever met anybody that's pro-abortion, have you? Nobody's pro-abortion. They're just what? Pro-choice, okay? (laughs) And so that's kind of the word games that evolutionists like to play. I didn't know it was a game. I thought this was real. You know, in fact, I always wanted to be a teacher. And so I wanted to learn evolution really well. So when it came my turn to uh, to teach, uh, you know, I could really tell my students about evolution. And from my point of view, don't forget this. A lot of evolutionists, including me at the time, think they're delivering your children, from the shackles of revealed religion and other outmoded silly superstitions from the past. And they're bringing them into the scientific age so they can stand on their own two feet. And for them, it really sounds like a noble goal. (laughs) And so that's what I was preaching, the war of nature, millions of years of struggle and death, struggle and death for millions of years made things better and better and better. None of it required God's help. Well, once in a while, you know, a Christian young person would raise their hand and say, well, you don't have to be that hard on the Bible. You don't have to be that hard on Christians. After all, you can believe in the Bible and evolution at the same time. And I know all of you 
have not only heard that view, you probably know people uh, that share that view. And it used to be, you know, kind of even appealing to me once I began to question this. It maybe, you know, you could see people arguing over creation evolution. You just step in as the peacemaker. Oh, now there's nothing to argue about. The, the Bible tells us who created, God created, and evolution tells us how he did it. <laughs> and so I kind of stopped at that point, you know, on my pathway from evolution to creation. At first, it seemed ideal, but just wouldn't be any reason to argue. But then I, uh, when I was an evolutionist, though, boy, did I see things differently. A Christian would say, well, you can put evolution and the Bible together, and I'd say, who'd want to pray to a God that wiped out 99.99% of everything he ever created? Who'd want to pray to a God that made a whole bunch of mistakes and buried them in the ground as fossils, hoping nobody would ever dig them up? Besides that, uh, you know, don't you Christians believe that God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, into the world to, to conquer struggle and death, to raise us to new life? And so if God's been using millions of years of struggle and death to make things better and better and better, Jesus would be opposing the plan of God. The evolution is not just a minor side issue. It's a direct attack on the core of the gospel message. I was actually harder on students that tried to compromise evolution with the Bible than I was with those that clearly stood for what the Bible clearly said. Well, if that's the way I was... What changed me? (laughs) I don't get any credit for this at all. (laughs) I wasn't looking for God. Little did I know he was looking for me. And I'd accepted my first college teaching position, and I got a strange invitation, an invitation from a chemistry professor, okay, to join a group for Bible study in his home. And I thought, People still study an outmoded, dusty old book like the Bible? <laughs> and, you know, it had no appeal to me at all. But then, the three secrets of successful evangelism. Are you ready? Free coffee and donuts. All right. <laughs> so, if I could only hang in there for an hour of Bible study, all the free coffee and donuts I could pack away. And that was pretty tempting. <laughs> And so my wife and I had just moved into the area. We were looking for some social opportunity anyway. And so we started making this Tuesday evening Bible study a regular event. And of course, what? Since it was a Bible study, I thought I should read the Bible so I could criticize it more effectively. <laughs> Made a serious mistake. Started at the beginning. And so here, you know, open it up, start reading about Genesis. And, and wow. There's all that stuff in the first couple of chapters about a perfect world that God created. Our our first parents had free access to the tree of life. They could eat and could live forever. Uh, None of the animals ate plants. People just ate plants. Uh, There was no death, no struggle, no death, no disease, no disaster. Wow. You know, it was just unbelievable. At least that's the way I looked at it. I, I said to the Bible teacher, how in the world can you believe this stuff? You know, pick up a newspaper, turn on the TV news, look out the window. Fires, floods, famines, plagues, AIDS virus, drunk drivers. Uh, the place is a mess. Obviously, the Bible's wrong. It's just what Darwin said everywhere you look. The war of nature, famine, and death. The war of nature, famine, and death. What do the Bible teachers say? Read on. <laughs> and so you read the third chapter in the first book. And now we know why the world's a mess. It's not the way God created it. Now I can tell you, having become a creationist, we do not live in the world that God created, at least not as God created it. God did create that perfect world. It was our sin, our rebellion, our rejection of God's gifts and God's love uh, that brought struggle and death into the world. And oh, boy, oh, boy. Uh, What a difference that made. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, futility, time, chance, uh, the key elements in evolution. Not of its own will, the creation didn't do anything wrong, but by the will of him who subjected it, our first parents. But then he goes on to say the creation will be delivered from its bondage to corruption and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. But in the meantime, even the heavens are growing old and wearing out like a garment to be cast off. And so uh, I think that confuses a lot of people. When you look at the world around you, 
Uh, you know, you do see all these wonderful things, the birth of a child. Even secular people often call it the, the miracle of birth, a blossoming of a rose, uh, sunset and sunrise, all these wonderful, beautiful things that we see uh, in around here, you know, crepe myrtle and things like that. And, and, and then you see the, all of these things, these horrible things. Uh, disease rampant, uh, starvation, wars, rumors of wars, all this. And it's confusing. On the one hand, it looks like all this evidence of design points points to the uh, uh, God and then all this evidence of catastrophe. What's going on here? Most people can't quite get it together. Sometimes they try to congratulate God for using evolution to make things better, but evolution doesn't make things better. It makes things worse. And so I wondered about that. Uh, Where do you find the answer? Guess what? <laughs> you get your answer in Genesis. <laughs> and so those two, the beginnings there of Genesis, explain all of the evidence of design and harmony we see. You know, that's the evidence of God's creation. All the evidence of disease, death, disaster, and decline, uh, that's a consequence of man's sin. <laughs> well, I first met Ken in Australia in 1980, so we go way back. I know he still looks young, but that's a different story. <laughs> and uh, I learned in Australia, they love to fight, they love to heckle, and they, they don't play by any particular set of rules. And so I'd already been on a few radio shows in Australia, and I was out in Perth, 12 time zones away. If you go to Perth, you can't go any farther or you'll be coming back. Okay, so I was out there. <laughs> and they said, well, here's a radio guy who wants to interview you. And they said, he's just, you know, when you come in, he'll just ask you who you are, you know, what you're in town for, what your schedule is. And I kind of nodded. I thought, yeah, he could do that. But I wasn't counting on it. And so I got into this room, you know, and nothing about who are you, why are you in town, and so on. You know, as soon as I get into the room, I said, so you're a creationist. You know, if you believe that God created us, why do we have a, a backbone instead of a center bone? And I said, so we can bend over. And he, he says, oh, wait a minute, you know what I'm talking about. We were designed, we evolved as four-footed animals. That's why we get back trouble, and that's, that's all. We were designed as four-footed animals. That's the problem. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll race you to the end of the block. You go on all fours, and I'll just run on two legs. Oh, you know, he just, he just kept going on and on and on, fuming about all this, quote, evidence of bad design, which is actually the corruption brought on by man's sin. And finally, I don't know, it was quite a ways into it, finally looked at me and said, so you're telling me God made the good things and, and evolution made the bad things. And I said, yep, you got it. <laughs> and so keep in mind, there is a sense in which evolution's true, but that's bad news. <laughs> it does a real good job of explaining not the origin of species, but the origin of birth defects, disease, disease organisms, things like that, really are changes that followed man's sin. In fact, the world became so filled with what Darwin called the war of nature, violence and, and cr- corruption, that God tells us in Genesis 6 that he was grieved to his heart that he'd created things and resolved to destroy that first world with a flood to give it a fresh start with Noah and those with him on the ark. Well, as a non-Christian reading the Bible for the first time, I thought, how terrible. Uh, You know, uh, uh, God created us, you know, gave us uh, eternal life or uh, endless life in the beginning, and we made one little mistake. See, that's the way I looked at sin and rejecting God's love and God's gift. God wipes us out. And uh, so, you know, I asked the Bible teacher about that, and the Bible teacher says what? read on. <laughs> and so uh, I, I, this is absolutely phenomenal. I, I'm, Ken has probably mentioned this, uh, you know, already, uh, that the ark probably next to the cross is the most widely recognized symbol worldwide of a God of salvation, a God of deliverance. And so it still is. And Jesus said, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so God announced, this flood didn't sneak up on anybody. God let Noah preach for 120 years. And if people had repented at Noah's teaching, there wouldn't have been a flood, which means there wouldn't be Grand Canyon and a bunch of fossils either, but there wouldn't have been a flood. How do I know that? When Nineveh repented at reluctant Jonah's preaching, God spared that city. 
God provides deliverance from judgment. We see that in the record of uh, Noah's Ark and how the animals begin to multiply and fill the earth again and their distribution. Uh, my wife is actually the leader, uh, lead author on the book, The Complete Zoo Adventure. Uh, just tells you all the rest of the stuff. They don't tell you on the signs in the zoo about the, the features of adaptation, the marvelous fit of living things to their environment, how they've suffered the effects of corruption, and how their distribution reflects migration uh, from the mountains of Ararat. So we see also the promise of salvation in Christ, that whole gospel message. You know, Romans 1 tells us the, the invisible things of God are clearly seen in the things that have been made. And I really think that's not just God in general. It's the God of the Bible. It's the gospel message. When we look at the world around about us, we see all kinds of evidence of design, beauty, harmony, things like that. Sadly, we also see evidence of Darwin's war of nature making things worse and worse and worse. We also stand on, walk around on, build cities on top of the mountains of animals buried at the time of Noah's flood. We see that whole record of of God's perfect creation ruined by man's sin, destroyed by Noah's flood, catastrophe, restored to new life in Jesus Christ. And that kind of got me thinking. And so I began to realize that all these years I'd been uh, teaching and preaching evolution. You know, I was preaching millions of years of struggle and death until death wins. And I began to wonder, why was I so keen on that? (laughs) That doesn't really sound like a happy ending. (laughs) Why was I so anxious that people believe that? And I began to think about that gospel message that I'd seen, you know, just in those early chapters in Genesis, that struggle and death are a consequence of man's sin conquered by Christ, life wins. So I began to think about that, millions of years of struggle and death till death wins or life wins, new life in Christ. And I thought to myself, now I know why people can be, want to be Christians. The Bible has a happy ending just like all those other fairy tales. Maybe, I wouldn't be surprised if some of you in this room have a really dear friend, member of your own family, okay, that you've explained the gospel to them. It couldn't be any clearer. There's nothing they don't understand about the gospel. There's really not much point in repeating it. They could tell you the gospel. They just don't believe it. Why not? You know, why would somebody choose to believe in millions of years of struggle and death until death wins when you can have new life in Christ? It's a free gift to you. It costs Christ quite a bit, but it's free to you. Why would they, why would they choose that? Well, unfortunately, I think I know the answer. I understood the gospel message long before I could accept it because I already knew it couldn't possibly be true. We had a fellow come to our museum down in Florida, someone, I didn't recognize him because we'd only dialogued on the radio. You know, he was a local atheist in town, and we talked back and forth on these things. And and as he visited our museum, you know, I said, I think you'd have a better life if you just pretended to be a Christian. And I said, well, you don't have to pretend. You really can be a Christian. You know, started talking to him. No, 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 no. He says, evolution's true. There's just no possibility. There's no God out there with the power to keep all those wonderful promises in Scripture. It's just a fairy tale. I wish it were true, but it isn't. Jesus is just another evolved primate, a little farther along than Neanderthal or Lucy and so on. But he's just, you know, just another animal brought into being by millions of years of struggle and death. He can't do those things. There is no resurrection. There are no other promises. There is no God to help you when you're in trouble. And so I want to emphasize, and I want to try to make the same emphasis Ken did, a slightly different way, (laughs) that uh, when we're talking creation evolution, it's not a side issue. It is a central core salvation issue. Now, a lot of you heard Ken explain this morning (laughs) that that doesn't mean in order to come to Christ, in order to be saved, that you have to believe in a six-day creation and Noah's flood and and certain things about carbon dating and all this. That's not the point. Uh, The idea is here is that uh, evolution has become a terrific stumbling block, not just for me, but for my whole generation that keeps them from even seriously listening to the claims of Christ. Now, when I was younger, (laughs) well, yeah, actually, my wife and I uh, met in high school chemistry class 
54 years ago, and the chemistry's been right ever since. <laughs> so, I was really flattered that she thought there'd be nothing better to do for our 50th anniversary than ride around in a car with me for 8,000 miles in eight weeks. Wow, okay. <laughs> and, uh, so I, and she belonged to the Baptist Youth Fellowship. Well, I'm no fool. Well, at least financially, okay. And so I realized that these people were were nice people. They were fun to be around, uh, these Christians and so on. And they often had picnics that involved free food. (laughs) And so we went to that. I actually learned songs, you know, and stuff. I think I spent about $1.87 my whole senior year for dates, (laughs) thanks to the Baptist Youth Fellowship. So... (laughs) And so, but I, I wasn't really listening. You know, we'd sing songs, we'd talk about uh, Jesus Christ, and it was nice. It was just, I, you know, I used to enjoy fairy tales when I was younger. This was a bigger fairy tale. And so that's why Paul warned Timothy. It's not a new issue. Paul warned Timothy about that. Avoid profane and vain babblings and the oppositions of what? Science falsely so-called. Now, that's the King James, and that just nailed it. There is no better definition of evolution than that. Science falsely so-called. It's just humanism dressed up in a lab coat to gain some respectability it otherwise doesn't deserve. And so they know people respect science. Science cures diseases. Science puts people on the moon, does all kinds of exciting things. And so if we can just claim that we're science, you know, people are think that we're dealing with the facts. And Paul warns it. Uh, human opinion about what those facts are and so on. Uh, some professing have erred concerning the faith. They've missed the mark concerning the faith. And that was me. That was a lot of your children. A lot of those two-thirds of high school students that are already gone, they'll never come back to church again. That's why. You know, there's just no point in even listening. It's a good story. They've heard the story. They know it's a good story. They wish it was true, but it can't be because evolution's a fact. And that's the way I used to teach it. And I believed myself when I was thinking about this. I thought my choices, you know, I could either believe science or I could believe the Bible. Uh-uh. That's science falsely so-called. A lot of people think that that's a choice they have to make. Well, what's science? Okay, science is man's exploring the world around him, making observations, testing ideas uh, by experiment and further observation. It deals with things you can see, touch, measure. It's real. It's touchable. It's tangible. You know it's there. You can check it out. And other people can run the test. They can find out it's true also. And so, it's, you know, science was reality. That's the way I look. And the Bible was a great story, but I'd read other great stories, too. It was just a story. And the real choices are what? Something quite different. Believe in evolution or believe the Bible. Science supports Scripture. And that's one thing I really, 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 really want to emphasize. Science is not. Science is not, 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 not the enemy of the Christian faith. Science is the Christian's ally in its battle with evolution. It's scientific discoveries that are constantly (laughs) refuting what evolutionists believe and confirming what the Bible taught all along. It just happens over and over again, like the genome project uh, that Ken was telling you about that confirmed, uh, you know, that they're just one race of people. Uh, And Christians had known that all along. If we'd just taken God at his word, how many things could we have avoided? National Geographic even came out with a whole issue on major scientific discoveries where scientists took something in nature, God's handiwork, and tried to copy it. That's where fiber optics came from, Velcro, uh, ocean current studies, all that. The anesthetic uh, were just uh, God, you know, people following what God had already revealed to us. So I once did a seminar down in Florida with the, the Christian's ally, science, the Christian's ally, disproves evolution's man's words and supports scripture, God's word. I'll say a little bit more about that at the end too, about the nature of what the evolution really is. Uh, But let me give you an example of that, science disproving evolution, supporting what the Bible says. Well, one of my favorite examples (laughs) are these guys. And uh, we just spent a few days at uh, my brother's house over in Greensboro on the way here. It's the first time we rested (laughs) in this eight-week trip. Woodpeckers. Okay, these are birds that uh, make their living banging their heads into trees. And when a woodpecker hits a tree, the deceleration experiences a thousand times gravity. The nerve and muscle coordination has to be perfect. 
a slip to the left or right, and the shearing force would literally spin the cover off the brain. <laughs> and so if you're going to be a woodpecker, make your living bang your head in a tree, you better have a strong build, strong skull, some shock-absorbing tissue between the two, perfect nerve and muscle coordination. Well, if woodpeckers were designed by God, you know, to play a role in the environment that even benefits other creatures, we can understand how this would happen. He designed them to do what, in fact, they do. But if evolution produced the woodpecker, you can't start there. And so evolutionists always have to start with something simpler. Now, we're not going to go back to the slime in the ocean or the first cell or something, uh, but just an ordinary bird. Okay, it already has feathers. It already has a warm body temperature, a flow through lung and all this. It's, it's a regular bird, but it's not a woodpecker yet. It's just flying around, minding its own business. Zots! It's hit by a cosmic ray. The first step in evolutionary progress <laughs> is some sort of damage to a gene, something scientists call mutations. Now, mutations are real. There's no doubt about that. In fact, scientists use mutations to explain the origin of birth defects, the origin of disease, the origin of disease organisms, all those kind of things are well known to scientists. But evolutionists make the claim for which there's no scientific support at all, that if you wait long enough, it's a casino mentality, you'll eventually get a lucky mutation. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, let's play along for a minute. So here's a mama bird flying along. Sots, gets hit with a cosmic ray. Now, cosmic rays can go clear through the earth, so it's not hard to get through a bird's body. But this was a mama bird just about ready to lay an egg. And the cosmic ray missed her genes, but it hit one of the DNA molecules and the little baby bird that was just about, the egg was just about to be laid, and it changed one of his DNA molecules, so he made a much tougher bill than the average bird. And so, you know, mother laid the egg, little baby bird hatched out, and he decides to try out this heavy-duty bill. Whack! Throws his head into the tree. Well, his bill is okay, but squishes in the front of his face. Massive cerebral hemorrhage. <laughs> now you know why evolution's so slow. It's all those dead birds at the bottom of the tree. <laughs> so, well, if you said that to an evolutionist, you know, say, oh no, you got the story backwards, you got it backwards. The first lucky mutation was a heavy duty skull. That's what came first. Well, rewind. Mama bird flying on sots, gets hit with a cosmic ray, goes through her body, hits an egg. Little baby bird's more with a heavy duty skull, decides to try it out. Whack! Throws his head into the tree. Now, this time a skull is okay, but crinkle, 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 a bill all folds up like an accordion. <laughs> You're still nowhere unless both of those things happen at the same time. And it's to Darwin's credit that he called adaptations the marvelous fit of living things to their environment, not evidence for evolution. His title for that chapter was Difficulties with the Theory. And he actually said if there was any feature of living things that could not be explained as a result of teeny steps accumulating over time with each step having its own separate survival value, my theory would be completely disproven. It's been disproven thousands of times. And by the way, since death entered the world, some of those woodpeckers are doing more than drilling holes to store acorns. They're looking for beetles in the bark. Well, the beetles hear all that pounding, so they just crawl further down their tunnel. So if that was it for the woodpecker, it'd be like the oil companies, one dry hole after another. <laughs> but the woodpecker has a long, sticky tongue. It reached, in fact, a couple of woodpeckers saved my grapefruit tree from bark beetles. Reaches in there, grabs the beetle, pulls him out. But if you get a long, sticky tongue just by chance, what are you going to do with it? Here it is dangling out of your bill. You know, you keep biting your tongue. <laughs> it's kind of frustrating. Hop along the ground, trip over your tongue. Bad news. <laughs> Flying along over a low twig, your tongue wraps around the twig, you hang yourself. <laughs> well, <clears throat> the answer for the woodpecker, and you can maybe barely see it in this next uh, picture, that little inset, uh, that tongue uh, fits into a tongue sheath that wraps all the way around the skull under the scalp and inserts into the nostril. So next time you see woodpeckers, you know, drilling holes looking for beetles, grab your binoculars and look, and you can see the scalp twitch as that tongue goes in and out of the tongue sheath. But there'd be no reason to have a tongue sheath without a tongue to put in it. It'd be dangerous to have a tongue without a tongue sheath. And uh, so you're right back to what some other evolutionists have admitted was, and I say is, the chief evidence of a supreme designer.
Well, some of those ideas then are contained in this uh, book, uh, Creation of Facts of Life. This is the revised edition, and it's all of the arguments that I used to use with my students to convince them evolution was true and how the rest of the story points away from evolution and toward the biblical record of earth history. And I like to think that it's done, you know, in in an approach that would appeal to someone that wasn't yet a creationist. I start off talking about what I believed as an evolutionist. And you can imagine a lot of college or high school students, yeah, yeah, that's what I believe. That's what I've heard all the time. And then talk about going to this Bible study and hearing this crazy story about creation, corruption, catastrophe, Christ, and what I thought of that. But I said, well, let's just check it out. So I start looking in the first chapter. I don't call it that, but it's really the evidence of creation. Then the second chapter starts off. Well, what about Darwin? What about the war of nature? What about fires, floods, famines, plagues? What about mutations? What about the struggle for survival? How does that fit in? And how all of those things do produce. And I really like Ken's example of the short-haired and long-haired dogs and all that. Really, you know, natural selection, so-called, in other words, the war of nature. Every time you see natural selection, just put in the word, say them out loud, the war of nature. <laughs> That's what they're talking about. Well, war of nature variety exists, but it doesn't change anything into anything else. It just sorts out where living things survive as they multiply and fill a fallen world. It doesn't change anything. A Darwin's famous finches didn't turn into something else. The ones with the big beaks have survived where there were seeds to eat. The ones with the little beaks survived where there were insects to eat. So it helps us explain how and where varieties survive. Nothing at all to do with how they change. Then the third chapter is on fossils that leads into a you know, gospel presentation at the end by the time they've gone through a lot of these things. And so finally, for me, this was a three-year battle <laughs> with the chemistry prof. You know, after I kept heckling him about the Bible and so on, he told me, he said, I think if you take another look at science you're going to find out science is telling you evolution is wrong, and you really can trust all those wonderful promises in Scripture. And so that's when the three-year battle began. (laughs) And for three years, I used all the evolutionary arguments I knew so well. I've never heard one from an evolutionist in a debate that I hadn't already used on myself years before. And for three years, I lost every scientific argument. (laughs) Some are slower learners than others, but I finally caught on what we see in God's world really agrees with what we read in God's Word. And so I said, now I'd been teaching college for several years, and I said, I need to tell my students about this. And see, I forgot to tell you one little detail in this story. Those early years when I was running down the Bible, ridiculing the Christian faith, convincing people it was millions of years of struggle and death, not God's plan, I was teaching at a Christian college. (laughs) Oh, oh, good. I'm glad you said that. (laughs) I heard some moans and groans. We really should moan and groan at that, shouldn't we? And yet when I mention that, people come up after me. Was it this one? Was it this one? Was it this one? (laughs) And it's just all too common. But here I start now, you know, I think I'm going to really, you know, uh, they'd already given me rapid promotions and raises and things like that. Now that I was a Christian, I thought, wow, I'll be on all the important faculty committees and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Instead, I got challenged to a debate by the Bible department. And at this particular Christian college, the Bible department was teaching the Old Testament was a collection of Babylonian myths and fables. Yahweh, Jehovah was a tribal war god of the Hebrew nation. Bore no relationship at all to Jesus Christ, the God of love in the New Testament. <laughs> and uh, wow, you know, so they, and here I was in the science class. I said, oh no, the Bible's a word of God. You can believe everything from Genesis 1-1 clear through to the end of Revelation. Well, that was too much for the Bible department, so they challenged me to a debate But there were three of them and just one of me. They didn't want me to have the underdog sympathy, so they asked me to get some help. And so I got the chemist who led the Bible study and a new biologist they'd hired. They slipped up and hired a Christian. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I should tell you, I was so surprised to be hired. I just went to the job interview because it was an all-expenses weekend paid vacation uh, with my wife. They got close to hiring me. I said, well, you know, know, I'm I'm not a Christian. Are you sure you you want to hire me? And uh, and you've got a statement of faith in there. I don't even know what those words mean. And they said, well, do you use Jesus Christ as a swear word? 
I said, well, no, not really. Okay. Well, but what about all these words in the statement of faith? Well, are you opposed to any of them? I don't know. I don't know what they mean. (laughs) Well, it's just tradition. You know, if you're not opposed to them, you can sign it in the fall. And so, you know, so I signed up, you know, and didn't get any trouble. But now we had, uh, you know, this great debate. And uh, so here it was, the great debate, uh, the Bible department defending evolution, the science department defending creation. (laughs) And so we got a nice write-up in the Philadelphia area newspapers. And that's happened worldwide. We've run into the same problem in Australia and in, in England when I've been with Ken on trips like that. And yet you have to wonder, why would anybody want to compromise uh, millions of years of struggle and death uh, with plan, purpose, and special acts of creation? Uh, unfortunately, here's the list, you know, inconsistent assumption of great age, mistakes about fossils, misunderstanding change through time. But I, I have to admit, for me and for a lot of people I know, academic pride is a big reason. And this is positively scary, but there's a, a well-known uh, creationist who actually thinks, you know, he's serving God and, and telling people how everything the evolutionists say is true. Uh, it's just that God did it. And of course, Ken talked a lot about that. As long as you think God did it, God can do anything. By the way, anybody here believe that? Anybody here at all think that God can do anything? You've been evolutionized. There are lots of things God can't do. God can't lie. God can't cheat. God can't steal. God can't keep you out of heaven if you'll trust in his son for salvation. There's all kinds of things God can't do. And God can't use evolution to create things for a couple of reasons. One, evolution doesn't create, it destroys. And another, it's totally opposite of his character. It's the war of nature, struggle, and death. What Christ came to conquer is certainly not the means that God would have used to create things. And so, but, you know, if you just believe, sometimes I gave my testimony at the back of a church one time, you know, they're shaking hands and (laughs) one gentleman came up, shook my hand and said, I thank God I'm a simple man, didn't have to go through all that. (laughs) And I'd mentioned at the end of the church service, you know, somebody will ask me, what do you believe, you know, about the history of life on earth? I said, same thing you would have been taught, you know, by a faithful Sunday school teacher in third grade. You know, six days of creation, a perfect world that God created, ruined by man's sin, destroyed by the flood, restored to new life in Christ. And if you're talking humans, the confusion of the Tower of Babel, all that stuff is true. And wow, it's really awesome. But let's take a look at the one that's hardest for most people. Okay, the age of the earth. You know, millions, 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 millions. They just go over that and over that and over that, over and over and over again. And so... uh, My major had been in biology, but uh, I got a grant from the National Science Foundation to go back and update my major in molecular biology, DNA, and genetics, and add a whole new minor at the doctoral level in geology, especially paleontology. (laughs) And wow, by the way, it was the richest I'd ever been in my life. I would like to thank you, the American taxpayer, for your generous support. And so I went, went back to school and, and uh, among other things, signed up for the uh, geophysics course to learn firsthand about the radioactive decay dating methods. This is what I thought was going to make it hardest of all, you know, to believe in, in just the, uh, the Bible as God teaches it. And so the prof is explaining, you know, potassium, argon, rubidium, strontium, uranium, lead, carbon-14, all these different methods. You know, I'm taking notes. How in the world, how, how in the world can I, you know, a six-day creation a few thousand years ago, what am I going to do with all this stuff? And, and so, uh, you know, and, and then uh, he gave us a problem to calculate the age of a rock using the best method is rubidium and strontium. A lot of the rocks, you have to select a certain crystal and you have to make all kinds of assumptions. But in the rubidium-strontium whole rock method, you can take a big rock, you know, crush it up and take multiple samples. And if they plot in a straight line on, on log paper, you think, well, there's no contamination. And where that line hits the vertical axis, that little gap, that's supposed to tell you how much there was to start with. And so it's supposed to be really just the ideal method. So he gave us a problem, two sets of data for one rock to figure out how old it was. Well, so I'm doing this homework problem. One of my dates was nearly 10 times bigger than the other. 
And I thought, oh, no, just like my checkbook, one arithmetic mistake after the other. And stayed up late, finally gave up, went to bed. Asked my friends on the way to class, did you get that problem to come out? No, I couldn't get it to come out. So we slink into class, you know, thinking that uh, the prof is going to be mad at us. And worst of all, he'll give us extra homework. But instead, he just chuckled. And he said, no, he said, I just wanted to show you the method doesn't always work. We could have tarred and feathered him. <laughs> the method may actually work way too well for evolutionists. And so this is just a standard cutaway diagram of, uh, of uh, Grand Canyon. It's kind of hard to believe looking at me now, but I've actually led over 40 week-long hiking trips through the canyon and a couple of raft trips. And wow, it is just an awesome testimony uh, to the creation, corruption, catastrophe, Christ theme in Scripture. And uh, you can see that Cardanus basalt, the one down there at the bottom, that little black layer with the 1.07 billion years on the raft trip. It's in Marble Canyon. You sail right past that and so on. And uh, so this was dated with uh, uh, the uh, you know, best method, rubidium and strontium. But then 10 days later, and so you're coming through on that raft way down past the main part of the canyon, past the Indian part of the Grand Canyon, and you cross Lava Falls. And uh, at the far end of Grand Canyon, there are 1,400 volcanoes, some extinct, fortunately, some dormant, some still active. Uh, But several of them went off in historical times as the Indians recorded it. They, They knew about this. They saw it happen. And the outpouring of lava was so stupendous that it actually filled the canyon about half full with water and backed water all the way up into Wyoming and Montana. And then finally, uh, the water overtopped the dam, you know, and eroded that dam. There are big chunks of lava that you can raft across. It's a serious uh, rapids uh, for sure. But notice the date. The one on the bottom was supposed to be way back when there were hardly any fossils at all. That's only one million years old. The one at the top that the Indians saw, around about 1,000 A.D. roughly, 1.34 billion If you took radioactive decay dates literally, what would that mean? The canyon formed upside down. (laughs) Maybe it's God's word that you should take literally, which just means as he wrote it. I said that to a TV person one time. So we can take the Bible literally. He says, oh, aren't there parables in the Bible? (laughs) I said, literally means as God wrote it. History is history. Poetry is poetry. Parables are parables. Oh, okay. (laughs) And so really something's horribly wrong with this method. And as a matter of fact, a team of five scientists from Oak Ridge National Laboratories you know, one of the most prestigious radiation labs in the whole wide world, way back in the 70s, published a paper. You just can't use this stuff to date rocks. It just doesn't work. And they gave a whole bunch of reasons why. If you have two rocks that have the same amount of this kind of radiation, they just came from the same magma source. You have no clue uh, how old they are. And a lot of these things, you know, we can check out things that are known from history. And here are things that vary, you know, from uh, 20 years to uh, 950 years, but they all give dates in millions of years. I'll say a lot more about Grand Canyon and Mount St. Helens tomorrow. That was that one. Uh, All these things here date millions of years, even though those are known to be wrong. That lava dome at Mount St. Helens will say a lot about Mount St. Helens tomorrow night in Genesis and geology. But my wife and I once had a chance to fly up, uh, right up over the lip of the crater, right around the lava dome that was still glowing red. And I thought, wow, if the volcano goes off now, I could get a really good picture. (laughs) But fortunately, it didn't. (laughs) But when that picture was taken, the the lava dome was known to be 20 years old. People filmed it. Lots of people filmed it. And yet, yet when you did a date on it, it was 2.4 million years old. And so uh, we're not talking about small errors here at all. Just 99.99999% error. Uh, And that was uh, uh, potassium argon. That is, everybody admits that's the worst method. And that's the reason uh, that people looking for ape men love potassium argon. And so it's like using a rubber band, uh, you know, as a yardstick. You can stretch it or you can get anything you want to. And they can change dates uh, very easily. Hopefully, you guys will be at the Creation Museum. It's not very far from here. And we just drove over from there on the way with a seminar in Tennessee. And wow, it's totally awesome. But they've also got a new display on a fossil that's been used to poison the minds of a whole generation of students. And it never did have any solid evidence for it. 
And so during the 80s and 90s and so on, I was part of the teams that debated uh, uh, evolutionists at universities around the world until the evolutionists quit. They quit debating uh, altogether. Actually, strangely enough, about the same time Christian compromisers began to attack creation. And they thought, oh boy, Christians attacking Christians. We'll just sit back and enjoy it. And this, but this never, and I, I debated anthropologists, but only one unlucky anthropologist ever tried to use Lucy in a debate with a knowledgeable creationist. It's in the books, it's in all the books, but you can't find a professional evolutionist that believes it, including Donald Johansson. I don't think he believes it because he knew he made it up. And so they've got a real outstanding display. If you really want to know the science of Lucy, you've got to go to the Creation Museum. And they even have a holographic image so you can see the bones inside the skeleton. That is really awesome. And so uh, I heard Donald Johansson talk about this in uh, San Diego. And I was going to ask him about the pelvis because it always never, every time I, they showed a picture, it was something different. It wasn't just photographic angle. When he was in San Diego, he just showed a plastic pelvis of a human being with a label Carolina Biological. <laughs> right, it was not far down the road from here. And so now I was in New Zealand one time. And his film came out, a Nova presentation on Lucy. And here it was. Oh, well, I'm going to have to listen to this, you know, and go through all this again. And, and uh, you know, so people ask me questions about it. And so here it was, finally, in his own video. Uh, he mentions that the pelvis never really fit with the idea that Lucy walked upright. Neither did the arm, legs, fingers, brain, or lack of feet. But he finally admitted the pelvis didn't fit. And they cut it up in pieces sent it to a man in America, a replica to a man in America, sawed it into pieces, glued it back together, and says, now it walks upright. <laughs> and the New Zealand newspapers just raked it over the coals. They said, that standard of evidence may be acceptable in America, but it's not acceptable in New Zealand. And then, uh, though right now, what about the dates? That's just off the list, like every other thing you ever heard. There isn't anything. There isn't any, even any, anything an, an evolutionist would use in a debate to support human evolution. But what about the date? And so Johansson admitted that the first dates he got for Lucy were less than 3 million years with potassium argon, the one that dates the Mount St. Helens lava dome at 2.4 million. And he said, uh, oh, I was just so disappointed. He wanted his fossil to be older than anything the Leakey family had found. So, you know, they went on digging, but kind of discouraged. And then the man said, I've got a new date for you, uh, you know, uh, 3.5 million years. And Johansson says, I'll take it. But nobody bothered to ask, why was that date any good? Uh, if the other date checked four different ways was wrong. Then another man uh, dated the same volcanic ash over Lucy, made Lucy even younger than the first date. An editor from Science News interviewed the man that now said the other guy had done four wrong dates. So they interviewed the man that had done the supposedly four wrong dates. Well, what do you think about the guy that says you were wrong every time? His snappy replied, I can live with it. He'd been wrong many times before. Being wrong again was no big deal. The guy had paid his bill. What was the problem? <laughs> So the editor from Science News wrote it up under this interesting title, Lucy, the trouble with dating an older woman. <laughs> and so you have to wonder, why would anybody that had any respect for science believe in radiometric dating? Well, this is going to sound paradoxical, uh, but paradoxically, the answer might be because it works. But notice the other condition there on and only on paper. <laughs> so if some of you are going in for a stress test and they're going to use radioactive technetium on you or something like that, uh, you don't have to worry about it. Look at that little hourglass. Let's think for a minute about a two-minute uh, game timer. So a little miniature hourglass on two-minute hourglass. And so, you know, you get all the sand up and turn it over. Now all the sand's in the top and it begins to leak through to the bottom. And so the sand on the top we can call a parent element and how fast it goes through that little nozzle is the decay rate and it accumulates in the bottom. And so if you knew this was a two-minute timer and you saw half the sand in the top, half the sand in the bottom, you'd say, I guess you guys have been playing this game for one minute. And that might be true, or they might say, no, we just came into the room, the glass was lying on its side, we're just now getting ready to turn it over. So you wouldn't really know for sure, but you can see if you knew how much was in the top of the hourglass, how much was in the bottom, and that it always flowed through at the same rate, it ought to work. But that's nothing like the real world. It's not that we don't know if those things are right, it's that we do know those things are wrong. 
Okay, and so there aren't even any theories about where the higher elements came from. And any of the theories that are proposed always make amounts of parent elements and daughter elements and presumably extinct radiation, all those kind of things. We don't have any way to get a rock that starts with just one pure element separated from all the others. We know that we don't know the start. And the decay rate not only can change, but does change. Uh, Nuclear power plants do that. Atomic bombs do that. An ore body in South Africa's near-critical high-energy bombardment with neutrons can change that. We don't even know whether it's a decay rate or just a stability factor representing resistance to neutrino flux. The daughter element that can be added and subtracted. If you had a uranium ore, say you had had a lead-lined glove and you got a chunk of uranium in your hand uh, that's half uranium, half lead, it's got a half-life of four and a half billion years, and you say, hey, that rock is four and a half billion years old. Put it in a lead-lined sink, turn on the faucet, you know. Overnight, it'll age millions of years because uranium salts wash away faster than lead salts. The next morning, it'll look like a little lead and a lot of or excuse me, a little uranium and a lot of lead, you know, like it had been aging for millions of years. And so we know that none of the assumptions in radioactive decay dating in the real world work. It just doesn't work. And so I was explaining this. One time I was uh, invited by one of my former students to speak at the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana. <laughs> and uh, so I'd given some talks and classes, and that was a big school assembly. And I'd given, when I give a university talk, I don't mention age because I know it's going to be the first question. So after the talk, I look for somebody that's growling and angry and thrusting their hand in the air, and I'll call on them because I know it's going to be about dating. And so, you know, usually they'll say, how can you believe the Bible? Haven't you ever heard of carbon dating? And I watch the professors in the audience kind of cringe because carbon dating doesn't go very far. So that's not what they usually use. Uh, but, you know, I'll explain that and then talk about some of these things. Well, so I answered that question, shared some of these things. And then a lady got up literally in a white lab coat. And uh, my former student tugs on my pants legs. That's Dr. So-and-so. She runs the radiation dating lab here. <laughs> and if I could have turned white, I would have turned white. <laughs> I knew that. I just forgot that that's one of the most famous radiation dating labs in the world. I've just given this glib little answer that I could share with anybody. And so I'm thinking, my prayer when I was doing all these debates, I usually prayed that uh, God would give me a question at the end that I could give a spiritual wrap-up. And he was very good about providing that question. Then I would also ask that I would only get questions that I could answer. (laughs) And the Lord wasn't as good with that one because he had other things in mind. So there was always at least one question, you know, that would trip me up. So that would keep me humble and keep me learning. Yeah, okay. (laughs) And so I thought, oh boy, I grabbed hold. You know, I called on her. Everybody knew who she was. And, uh, you know, I thought this is going to be one of those learning experiences. Haven't you? Don't you know this? Don't you know that? Don't you know the other thing? But instead, she just said, If what you say is true, you're telling me my job is worthless. After I got my breath back, (laughs) the thought that occurred to me was, yes. (laughs) Uh, But the Holy Spirit constrained, and instead of doing that, you know, I said, oh, well, now, let me make it clear. And this is the thing that fools people. In the lab, when they measure the amount of uranium, when they measure the amount of lead, they get nine significant figures. They can do parts per billion. They very accurately measure the amounts of the material. And, of course, they have a range of, uh, you know, half-lives that they can use. And so it seems like it ought to work. It's the real world that's the problem. You don't know how much there was to start of the parent element, daughter element. You don't know what's been added or subtracted. And so her measurements are fine. They just don't apply to anything. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I was supposed to be good news. <laughs> and, she, and she just sat down. And so we went on to other questions. It's just absolutely amazing. And this has been known for a long time. This is a write-up uh, in a, a science textbook written by a, a evolutionist, four evolutionists at Cal Poly out in California. Uh, there is no absolutely reliable long-term radiologic clock. And he went through all the same methods that I did. He went on to give about a dozen different evidences for a young Earth, including carbon-14. And that is just totally astonishing. Carbon-14 has a short half-life, 5,730 years. We'll just round it off to six. 
And as long as you're breathing or plants, you know, taking in carbon dioxide, you got about the same percentage of carbon-14 as everything else does. But when something dies, it's not trading carbon anymore. The carbon-14 disappears. If it's been dead, you know, 6,000 years, it'll be about half as much as you had to start with, 12,000 years, a quarter as much. But how do you know where to start? And so when Libby invented the method back in the 60s, he said, well, it only takes 30,000 years years to fill up the atmosphere with with carbon-14 till the rate of formation equals the rate of decay. Everybody knows the Earth is older than 30,000 years. It must be in balance. The atmospheric scientists back then said, danger alert, there's something wrong with your theory. There's only enough carbon-14 in the atmosphere for an Earth less than 20,000 years old, perhaps closer to 10. And 2 Peter 3, he was willingly ignorant, deliberately ignored the facts to promote that idea. And yet here's what Stansfield says about creationists are right. Carbon-14 is building up in the atmosphere. Uh, And so the earth can't be very old or, now this is an evolutionist in an evolution book. He says, perhaps a greater concentration of water vapor existed in the atmosphere. That would slow down C-14 production. When was that? Prior to the, what does he say? That next to the last line, biblical flood, presumably 5,000 years ago, better dating than many theologians. Here's an evolution that says, I know why carbon-14 is out of balance. It's a biblical flood 5,000 years ago that shook up the earth's atmosphere. What do I say? Amen, brother, preach it. Yeah, it's just amazing that that was what I thought would make it hardest to believe in, uh, uh, you know, in the Bible as God wrote it. And then the last thing we did in the geophysics class on radioactive dating was to list all the assumptions and all the difficulties. And right in the middle of this, the prof says, you know, if a Bible-believing Christian ever got hold of all this, he'd make havoc out of the dating system. And so he said to us, keep the faith. Keep the faith. At bottom, that was all there was to radioactive decay dating, a faith the facts had failed. At bottom, that's all there is to evolution, a faith the facts have failed. You know, evolution is not science, never was science, never will be science, never could be science. It's a belief about the past made up by men who weren't there, men who don't know everything, men who made lots of mistakes. In fact, if you had a neighbor who was a scientist, you could, you could ask a scientist. Well, let's see here. Okay. Imagine, okay, that you had this kind of situation. I've got to get the right arrow going here. Uh, ask, supposing you had a neighbor. You'd had discussions with him, and finally you asked him. I'm just curious. Now, I, I know we have different opinions, and, but I don't really want your opinion. Now, as a scientist, as a scientist, what can you really tell me? Just tell me. What can you tell me as a scientist? How old is the earth anyway? What would a scientist say? He'd say, well, you're right, I've got my opinions. But as a scientist, the only thing I can tell you is I can't tell you anything. I don't have any way to tell you how old the earth is. I'm a scientist. I study things I can see, touch, measure in the present. Oh, I can measure radioactive elements. I can measure radio decay. But I have no idea where they came from. I have no idea whether the decay rate's already always been the same. I know it can be changed. I don't know about the environmental effects on the... I, I don't have any way to, to assess this at all. And I have my opinion, but it's not a scientific opinion. It's just my belief. If you really desperately want to know how old the earth is, what you really need is a reliable witness who was there who just up and tells you, what's the Christian God? The history book of the universe. <laughs> And God just up and tells us. He's not only a reliable witness, he's the one that made it happen. I did it in six days at the dawn of human history, 6,000 years ago when you add up those numbers. And so it's a matter of trust. Are you going to trust the words of men who weren't there, who don't know everything? Science experts like I once was, that's one of the things that convinced me. No. Science textbooks have to be written, rewritten, revised, rewritten. The Bible never had to be written once. God got it right the first time. So if you really want to believe in those millions of years, what do you need? They're in the Bible, all right. Not in the beginning. Notice how many times evolutionists get things backwards. Not in the beginning filled with millions of years of struggle and death, but in the future filled with what? Joy and peace in a restored relationship with our risen Lord. I think it was this morning, you know, we sang Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. When we've been there 10 million years, 10 billion years. 
Wow. Dr. Morris used to like to put it this way, that, you know, in a restored relationship with God, in that new heavens and new earth, we'll have a nearly infinite amount of time to explore a nearly infinite amount of space to learn a nearly infinite amount about our absolutely infinite God. You have a choice between depending on the ever-changing words of men or the never-changing living word of the living God. May I really recommend (laughs) the living word. Well, shall we pray and then we'll be dismissed and rescue the children from the people who have been taking care of them. (laughs) Father in heaven, I thank you so much that you sent people into my life that were willing to hang in there with me for years until I finally um, took hold of what later seemed so obvious and so full of joy and peace and harmony. And so I would ask, Father, that the things that we share here, the resources that people get, they'll be able to be that catalyst in somebody else's life that the Holy Spirit can use to turn them from struggle and death to peace and joy of new life in our risen Lord. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Thank you.